Well, good morning, everyone. I, I tell you, we've been looking forward to coming. This is my wife, Fliss. And Fliss, why don't you do a twirl? She's giving me a horrible look now. Just do a quick twirl, darling. There she is. This is my wonderful wife. And uh, as Ant says, um, I, I guess Ant and I met maybe 18 months, maybe two years ago, but over the last year in particular, we've, we've become friends. And the other evening we went, uh, well, maybe a month or two now, we went out for a meal with Helen and Ant. And, and I tell you, we... I think they were kind of sweeping the floors and clearing up the tablecloths when we finally left because we just found we had so much in common, so much to share and so much to, to kind of laugh about and, yeah, cry about too. You know, it was just a wonderful evening and, and we've so appreciated our growing friendship, not just with Ant and Helen, but with the rest of your team as well. And I can, I can say this, and I don't say this everywhere I preach, but if I wasn't at the vineyard, I'd be coming here. I've, I've just grown, I mean, just to, to respect Ant and his leadership and his teaching. I even, on a day off, snuck in the back of church when you were at St. Columbus, and it was pretty darn good, I tell you, you know. But anyway, so it's lovely to be here this morning, and I do bring greetings from the vineyard, and uh, if I can be terribly rude, uh, we have, on Friday, December the 5th, a, uh, what is this, darling, I'm trying to trying to plug here. It's called the Journey of the Magi. It's Springs Dance Company. They're a, a, a professional company, and we're starting our Christmas season on, on December the 5th, on the Friday there, and we would love you to come along, bring your friends. Uh, it's supposed to be absolutely outstanding, and adults are five quid, concessions three, and a family ticket is 12. So come along, bring your friends. It may be a great way of starting December. I got that in. We can run now. <laughs> Okay, I've been praying about what to, to share, and, and curiously enough, this is funny how God does things, but when I first started my ministry, which was uh, uh, nearly 30 years ago now, uh, God gave me a message out of Paul's first prayer to the Ephesians, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, and pretty well everywhere I went, I preached that message, and it kind of grew and it developed and all the rest of it. Uh, and then, I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, other things kind of, um, you know, came along and what have you. But I was asked to speak just two or three weeks ago uh, somewhere, and, and suddenly the Lord said, it's time to start preaching that message again. So this, for me, is, is fairly familiar to, to territory. But my prayer is this, that although it's familiar to me, that, that it will come across like fresh bread from heaven. You know, you know the wonderful smell of fresh bread or, or fresh coffee, whatever, you know, excites you. I, I pray that this message will come to you as, uh, as fresh bread. And I remember the first time I ever turned to the book of Ephesians to preach was actually when I was in, Har in Harrogate. And I, it, it was back in 1976, something like that. And I had just begun to recognize a sense of call to the ministry. And... Uh, it, it was so embryonic, it was untrue, and there was all sorts of turmoil and things. Anyway, I'd shared this with some close friends, and at that time it wasn't fixed about which denomination or stream or how I was going to respond to this call to the ministry. But a friend of mine, he was the worship pastor of a local Pentecostal church, I'd never been there, and he said, well, look, you ought to come along to our church sometime, and I'd love to introduce you to my pastor. So I made a mental note, yeah, I'll do that. I will do that, and... Uh, so a few weeks later, I, I just sort of arrived unannounced uh, before the evening service, was there a little bit early, and my, my friend was sort of going through the songs with, with the other musicians, and I just sort of snuck in the back there. And 
he's kind of going through these songs, and then suddenly he peers through the lights, and he sees me, and he big beam over his face, and he points to me, and he runs down. He's like a little puppy dog wagging his tail, so delighted to see me. And he drags me over and introduces me to his pastor, and, uh, and he says, you know, this is Chris Lane, and he's just sort of going to the ministry or something. And I thought, well, it's a little bit premature, but, you know, fair enough, go with the flow. So anyway, we get into the service, lovely worship time, and uh, the pastor then gets to uh, give up a few notices, just like Ant did, and, and then he said, and do you know what? Do you know what? We have a special guest tonight. And I thought, oh, I wonder who that is. <laughs> pastor Chris Lane. Let's give Pastor Chris Lane a big... Come up here, Chris. Give us a word. Give us a word. I tell you, I, I, I nearly died. You know, my, my heart missed three beats, and I'm sat there paralyzed, thinking, I've never preached in my life. And suddenly I'm Pastor Chris, and I'm about to give a word. Well, at that time, I was looking, I was using Every Day with Jesus. And uh, there'd been a little thing about, some, about every spirit, in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We could preach on that all morning, couldn't we, really? And I, that had captured my imagination. And, and thankfully, in, in my, my terror, my panic, I suddenly had this remembrance of this every day with Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing. So I thought, I'm not going to get out of this. Okay, I'll go for it. Why not? So I sort of you know, bustled myself up, walked down the, the, the aisle, got behind the lectern and, you know, looked them and sized them all up, you know. And I said, would you put, uh, I'd seen pastors walking around like I'm doing, I'm still doing it now, you see, walking up and down. I said, would you please turn to the book of Ephesians? And they went, boom, like that. And instantly they were all into the book of Ephesians. And I knew I was in trouble because I, I, I could see from the platform that there was highlighting and there was lemon and there, was, there were notes on notes and highlighters on highlighters and, and there was sub-notes and there were little people had pasted in extra pages so they could do notes on Ephesians. And the glow of it all lit up their under chins. I can see I'm going to be okay this morning, though. <laughs> I'm a visitor. Be nice to me. And could I find Ephesians? I couldn't find the book of Ephesians. I, kept, I thought it had fallen out as I walked down the aisle there, you know. I couldn't find this blessed, wonderful book called Ephesians. This is absolutely true. Somebody at one point shouted out, it's in the New Testament. <laughs> That's really the end of my opening story. Sometimes people say, well, what happened then? Well, what happened then was I blundered through a sermon and they never invited me back. So say no more about that, okay? Maybe true this morning. So we're in the book of Ephesians. And this letter is uh, oh, one of the high points of in my personal view, one of the high points of Paul's teaching. It's generally attributed to Paul. It has a lot of uh, correlation and connection with the book of Colossians. And, and both these books, Ephesians and Colossians, were written by Paul, the kind of superhero church starter of his day. Paul, who wrote much of the, the new, what we call the New Testament, which is the latter part of the book, 
And most of his letters are kind of like traveling letters. He's going around, he's starting churches, he's visiting churches, he's overseeing churches, he's dealing with issues in the church. They're quite practical. There's always good theology in there, but they're very practical as well. But Ephesians is different because it's a bit more of a general letter. Because he's in prison in Rome, he's been arrested and he's appealed to, to the Roman judicial system and he's been sent to, to Rome to have his, co- his case judged there. So he's, he's kind of groping a little bit. So he ri- he's still writing. He, he's, he's kind of frustrated because he can't be doing what he wanted to do. He wanted to go out to, to Spain and do some church starting over there. But, so he's, he's in prison But actually, when you read this book, and as you read Colossians 2, you begin to realize that he may be physically in prison, but something has happened to him. And it's as if he's finally broken free. He's got over himself. And man, do we need to get over ourselves sometimes. It's like... Suddenly, he gets it. And this letter is, the first half of it is great theology, great Christological theology. it's, It's such a feast. I would encourage you, whether you're using Every Day with Jesus or whatever, just check out Ephesians this week. It won't take you long to read through. And if you can lay your hands on something with a few notes and a little commentary as well, it'll do you good. And the second part of the book is, is more about, in, in the light of this wonderful theology, how do, we, how do we relate to one another? How do we get on with one another? So there is a practical element. But Paul writes it and he says, you know, send it around. Let everybody have a little look at it. Uh, look at it. But he has in this book two prayers, two apostolic. Apost- apostle is one who sees Christ as being called by Christ one who has encountered Christ personally. And, and these great apostolic prayers are well worth a second look. And we're going to look at the first one. So we're picking it up here. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 15. And, and I think what I'll do is, I'm going to break it down a little bit, but I'm just going to read it through to the end of that chapter because there is a flow and it builds and there's a crescendo with it. And I hope that you will see in this little portion, this little outtake, that this sense of Paul breaking free, even though he is in prison. Verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Man, give the Lord a clap, please. Whoa. Doesn't it do you good? I tell you, it does me a power of good. Here he is in prison, and he's probably got to know Fred the jailer and one or two of the other cellmates there. And here he is. You can see where his spirit is going. You know, I'm united with Christ. And he is above all authority. This is just a sham. This thing is just the, the antechamber. This, is, this isn't the real deal. So this is where Paul is going. And then his, his mind, because he's that kind of a guy, drifts out, wanders out, looks out to the churches that he started. And he's thinking, oh man, I'm so frustrated. I wish I could get out there now and share that with this, them with this, this revelation, this understanding, because it would do them a power of good too. But he can't do that. He's in jail. So he sends this, this letter to be read in the churches. And his prayer is basically that the church would have the same revelation that he has had, that it would break free. And it's divided into three parts. First of all, he says this. Can I just say, actually, verse 15, just because it begins with a little phrase, for this reason. The reason here, and you'll need to just check this out yourselves. Basically, uh, what is, what's gone before is that, that um, Paul is saying you are chosen, you're predestined. You know, God has singled you out. If you're a visitor here this morning, you may just be checking out this Christianity thing for the first time. I want to just play with your mind just for a moment. You are here because God has chosen you to be here this morning. You, this may be a strange environment. You may be not sure what you think of me or and or the worship or anything. There may be a number of things. Already you may have been slightly disappointed by someone's response to you as you came through the door, or you may have been delighted. I do not know. What I do know is this, that Father, your Father of mine, stretches his arms wide and says to you, Welcome home. I was expecting you. Fix your thought on that. Fix your thought on that. So we've been chosen by Christ, and as followers of Jesus, and as Paul reminds us here, we have been given this promised Holy Spirit. I wish I had more time to talk about that, but I know this is a great teaching church in spite of my, my cheap shot earlier on. Uh, and you'll <laughs> stick around and you'll hear about that. But, but we're sealed. It's, it's the deposit. It's the inheritor. It, it's the the indicator that you have that inheritance. Now, now, before I finish this morning, and if I forget, I'm wearing a little diamond ring this morning. I don't normally wear this ring. I'm, it's not actually my favorite ring. Not that I'm a ring guy, but... <laughs> I'm just a hairy, chesty kind of dude, really. You know. But I'm wearing this ring for a purpose. If I forget and lose myself, uh, don't let me finish this morning without telling you about this ring, okay? Okay, there's the... Po- Point of that. So that's the four reason thing. So the first part of this prayer, verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. You know, I, I, hope, I, I hope that you are all praying, if you're praying people, that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. 
You know, it said that uh, said in the Old Testament that there was this tribe, the men of Issachar, and, and the commentator writing about them said that they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The, this is a season, as a nation, as a world, where we really need to get close into God's countenance, God's, God's presence, God's, the, the wisdom of God, and find out what the heck's going on. Because nobody seems to know. And this is actually a time when people are coming to the church and saying, has the church got any answers? Because quite frankly, things I've devoted myself for my life just do not seem to be working out. We need that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might understand the times and know what we should be about. We do have a message. We do have something to say about this. We do have something that is timely and in season. But actually, Paul doesn't say that. I'm not doing the text justice. What he says there, he says, I should... He prays that, that the people of God should have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know him, that is Christ, better. He say, oh God, you know, you've shown me... Ext- Here I am in jail. We don't know whether he was under house arrest at this time or actually physically in jail, but he was, he was in jail. And in this place of restricted movement... Suddenly, his spirit soars. Suddenly, it's as if God opens up the heavens to him. And he sees Christ for who he is. And what's more, he sees how he relates to Christ and how he is included in Christ. Sadly, there isn't going to be time for me to to pitch into all of that. Read it. It's in the book. You'll see. It's amazing. And he's, he's, so he's praying. He's saying, this is his prayer, his daily prayer for himself. But he's now, it's his best prayer. And he's wanting to pray it for the church. Oh, God, please give them that self-same spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know you better. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I have found myself in this place this year where I've been to a number of conferences. I've deliberately gone to other conferences in other streams and, and uh, some of them being quite uncomfortable for me, it has to be said for various reasons. Some of them have not been familiar. Some of them have made me feel a little bit weirded out. But one thing I've seen in all of these is things that are precious, things that are new, things that are refreshing, and I've been grateful. I've been thankful for other expressions of Christ's church because they've shown me things where I've had previous blind spots. You know? I, I know, I would presume to say I know Christ. Thank God I know Christ. And if I ask for a show of hands, many of you would put your hand up. We presume based on his promises to say that we know Christ. And yet this year I've been on a bit of a journey because I have found myself disconcerted and made a little uncomfortable and perhaps even a little threatened, sometimes even a little defensive because there have been aspects of Christ presented to me which have been unfamiliar and I thought, oh, I don't, huh. and I suddenly realized it's the Lord. Because he's not, Paul isn't praying of the Ephesians, I pray that they would know Christ. They do know Christ, but he, he's praying that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know Christ better. Better. Things that I've been challenged about this year, God's passion for justice. Passion for justice. I, went, I was invited to a, a very small group uh, up in London 
where a Christian author, a commentator, I, I would even say he was, had a prophetic edge to him, a guy called Jim Wallace was speaking. And it was a small breakfast group. It was a bit of a, an honor to be invited, and I was puzzled as to why I had been invited, and still am, quite frankly. But he started talking about the church, and, and he commended the church. And I kind of thought I was going to get beaten up there. You know, I'm a church leader, and the church isn't doing enough, and what's the church doing about this, and did the church know that X billions are dying? I was kind of bracing myself a little bit for, for a very eloquent version of that kind of mugging, you know? But actually, you know, he's, he, he completely disarmed me because he spoke of Christ, of the love of Christ. He spoke with tenderness of the church. He commended it for the church the way the church had actually engaged as no other organization or institution on the face of God's earth with, with the AIDS pandemic in, in, in South Africa, in Africa. And he was full of commendation. And I thought, I like this guy. He's a good man, this guy. And then he said, but you know, it's time, it's time for the church to move on from just dragging drowning men out of a river. It's time the church started asking, who's throwing this man in the river? Think about it. The church is great in reacting to crisis. Everywhere where there's a challenge, the church is there first. The church of Jesus Christ, we get a bad press, but we're there first. Our workers and our missionaries and, and our charity organizers are there. Tear Fund, Christian Aid, you know, uh, world, world Vision, you know, and many more. But Jim Wallace posed this question which both unsettled me and opened up a no, whole new area of the passion of Christ, the concern of Christ. As I said, we're good at dragging men and women out the river. Time we started asking who's throwing them in. A call to getting engaged with the political element. I find it fascinating and also disconcerting. That was my trouble. That may not be your trouble or issue. There may be other areas. But, but Paul is praying that we might have this spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know Christ better. The other thing is that, uh, I'll just say this before I move on. The other thing I've noticed is that I, I've picked up a great hunger, a great desperation to see God move in what was once termed, maybe we would still term it, in revival power. Uh, and a revival is an extraordinary sort of sociological event where hundreds, thousands, sometimes even millions become believers in Christ. And, and it's extraordinary. It's like wildfire. And you see whole communities changed and transformed. Now, I've been a Christian for a little while now, and there's been two or three seasons where that's been the language of the day. And this seems to be coming back. But one thing I have noticed is that very often, when people start talking about what it's going to be like, they start defining it in ways that, in ways that previous moves of God looked like. Now, it's very funny. I said, you know, in the mid-70s, I kept for some myself, this adventure began for us. And people then were talking about a, a, another great revival. They were talking about the revival that seemed to have taken place about 20 years previously around the ministry of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, in the, Billy Graham came in the 50s and he took over Haringey. And, and there are men and women in ministry now because they got saved at Haringey 
and, and I think he was booked in for a week or two weeks and it ended up being a whole summer of meetings and hundreds of thousands of people tipped up at Haringey Stadium and, and went forward. It was an extraordinary thing. Now, in the 70s, people were saying to us, there's a revival coming. The stadiums are going to be full. God is looking for men and women with a great voice, a great preaching ministry. And I bought into all of that. But you know, when the next move of God came, it didn't look like that. And actually, all those who had been praying and working and yearning and fasting and longing and, and speaking of the revival to come were a bit grossed out by the revival when it actually did come. And then those who, and I'm not going to, because I don't want to be unnecessarily contentious because we might disagree as to which was revival and which was, wasn't, but there's been two or three moves of the Spirit in the 80s. And, and, uh, and, and, and very often, you know, those who were involved then are telling us now that when this move of God comes today, it's going to look like this. We're going to roll around and laugh and bark like dogs and all sorts of things. But it's not like that. And my prayer is this, that in knowing Christ better, I, I want my, f- my center of gravity to be on both feet. I don't want to be already half running ahead of God in another direction. I want to have my center of gravity on both feet as, as a tennis player at Wimbledon, kind of rocks like this, waiting to receive a serve. Because any way that ball goes, I want to go that way. I don't want to be pitched in over this side saying, it's going to be this way, we're all going to be barking, you wait and see. And I did a bit of barking myself, have it done. You know, whatever. I want to be like that taut, alert athlete, ready to receive the surf, whichever way my Jesus pitches it. Amen? Amen? I don't know what it's going to look like, I just want to be there. The next thing that he prays is this. Thank you. Next thing he says is this, verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Two things there. We're not talking about optimism here. You know, uh, as we consider how uh, we as, as individuals, as families, uh, as, as businesses represented here, as churches represented here, uh, as we consider how we may best navigate our way through this economic recession, we are assimilating various bits of information. Some of us may be in the happy position where saying, well, we've, you know, our order book's holding strong. We've got good cash reserves. We've got a good relationship with our banks, so we have reason to have optimism that we're going to be able to weather this. Yep, there's going to be a bit of, you know, rickety rail type stuff at a few moments, but we have, we have reason to be optimistic about our future. Now, the moment any one of those single factors, whatever those factors, changes, it may completely blow our optimism out the water. You see, the hope we have in Christ is not optimism. It's something that transcends optimism. 
Romans 5, 5 says this, that, you know, we are called to persevere. Now, what, where, 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 and in what kind of condition are we going to build up or learn perseverance? When we're in a, we're in a tough time. You don't need to persevere when you're sat there on the sofa, lounging on the sofa, watching a bit of cricket with a, with a cold stubby in your hand, you know? There's not much perseverance in that. The perseverance that we learn and we exercise is when we're in a tough time because we have to keep making a decision to get out of bed and put our foot in front of the other and make it through the day. Perseverance, Romans 5, 5 says, it builds character. Character produces hope. And hope will not fail us. It is transcendent. It will be the very thing that your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, some of even your bosses will say to you, Why, what is it with you? It almost irritates me. All hell is breaking loose, but you seem to be dancing to a different tune. Too right. Hope does not disappoint us. Paul is in prison. There's rumors of persecution and difficulty. He is praying that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened to the hope that we have in Christ. Not only that, he's talking that we we might understand the inheritance that is ours. Now, the inheritance, we could spend a whole deal of time talking about inheritance. And and I'm not going to... Two or three things. There's a whole preaching series to be done, which may have already been done on on the blessing of Abraham and how as followers of Christ it becomes ours. And that's an amazing, wonderful use of time. There's the inheritance that is the gospel. In fact, when Ant came, he did us great service by teaching us that, you know, for all of this buildings and groups and small groups and and church planting and all the rest of it, the gospel should it be at the very heart of what we have. It's, it's the mystery that has been revealed from heaven for us and we have to take it on. We, you know, we've got a pretty nice building too. We can get the building right, we can get the small group right, we can get the structures right, but if the gospel isn't at the heart of it, if we've lost that bit of our inheritance, we have lost the whole gig. Far better we'd be meeting on a rubbish dump somewhere and preaching the gospel than having a wonderful testimony to the, you know, the, the skill and the, uh, of man and no gospel. The gospel is an inheritance. The good news about Christ's love for us, his passion for us, his rising from the dead. This is all part of our inheritance. The other inheritance that we are looking forward to is being with Christ, that this isn't the, the only thing that's going to happen. That actually, actually, we are going to heaven. In the 70s, we, we had an incredible sense of Christ coming again and us going to heaven. It was common parlance amongst Christians in the 70s saying, well, we're gonna, we, we plan to go to Cornwall on holiday in August. That's if Christ doesn't come back before now. And nobody thought it weird. It was just something about the church then. We had this incredible sense of the imminent return of Jesus Christ to wind everything up, to judge the nations of the world. We kind of lost that now. We're so busy in the now. And and I don't want to knock that. That's good. Far better living in the now than living in the past. So we have an inheritance. But even in that, we need the eyes of our heart to be open because heaven isn't up there. As you read the scriptures... 
It's heaven down here. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's actually here. There's a whole wealth of study to be done in that area. Because Christians today, we're not even talking about heaven, let alone actually trying to teach it in an intelligent way. God is into inheritance. It matters to him. I'm going to tell you my little ring story now so I don't forget. My, uh, my father died when I was about 12 or 13, and my mother remarried in six months. It was quite, quite an interesting time. As a, for a 12 and 13-year-old. And uh, my mother clearly felt awkward about it and, and, and difficult about it. Uh, but one of the things that became like a little hook that she, she hung her anxiety on was the question of my, daughter, my, my sister and my inheritance. Now, it was a semi-detached house in Twickenham. It wasn't like it was, you know, 2,000 acres in, in Derbyshire, you know. But my mom kept saying to me, and it really didn't mean much to me at the day because I was actually grieving my dad and now I had this new dad and two new brothers, both of them who were older than me, which is a big, big deal, you know. But my mother kept saying to me, don't worry, when I die, your inheritance is safe. You and your sister will get, you know, what your father left me. And this seemed to make her feel better. It didn't mean much to me. As we grew up and grew older and started our own families, occasionally my mother would say this thing again. It was clearly an important hook on which to hang her anxiety, her guilt, her shame, or whatever it was. Now, what happened was, was my mother died before my father, my stepfather. And um, I didn't really think about it to begin with. But then after a little while, I, I said to my sister Tilly, I said, have, have you... Do you, have you heard anything about a will or anything? And she said, no, I was going to ask you the same question. Well, my, my mother had only died without making a will. So I left it a few months, and then because it has been such a big thing for my mother, I wrote to my stepfather and said, hi, Peter, how are you doing? You know, and we sort of kept in touch. You know, we, we, we hadn't sort of not spoken or anything. And I said, my mum was always going on about our inheritance. You know, how's that going to work? Anyway, long story short, some several months later, after increasingly acrimonious letters, it was quite clear that my sister and I were going to get, and for those of you on the iPod, the, the, I'm showing up with the zero, okay? <laughs> and it, I can remember the morning that I got the final letter from my stepfather. And I don't know, something... I won't say I snapped, it wasn't like that at all, but I just was really, I felt really abandoned and angry and frustrated and ticked off, to be honest. And so I went up to the room, I used to use the little prayer room, and, and I'm up there and I'm thinking, oh God, you know, that's the truth. And then I got a bit of anger on it. I said, God, you know, it's my blooming inheritance and that's important to you. And, you know, and he's ripped me off and all this kind of stuff. Fancy sending a tidal wave into Cornwall? That's <laughs> where he lived, you know. <laughs> Any spare sulfur and brimstone? No, you know, I was just not doing too well with it. Anyway, at that point, Fliss knocked on the door and said, Sweetheart, we need to go. I'm really sorry. Uh, and what she was referring to was that we had, uh, for years, goodness knows why, we'd kept in touch with my old music master when I was at school. And curiously enough, 
he had been very kind to me when my father had died. And I don't know, it spawned a bit of a friendship. And he had sort of just uh, looked out for me. And we'd kept in touch. And, and, and made, mainly that meant that once a year we would go down there for lunch. And this was the day we were going to, to lunch. And I could really have just done with the day on my own and gone for a walk in the park and calmed down. But no, we got to drive down to Newbury and round the M25 and all the rest of it. Anyway, we get down there and it's very pleasant. We go out to a pub and we have a bit of lunch and what have you. And then we're driving back and Michael, my music master, says to me, and he says, Chris, um, there's something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, could I have a moment when we get back to the house just privately with you? And I thought it was a bit odd because Fliss and myself, we're never, you know, it was a long, anyway, we got back there and Fliss was sent off to make some coffee or something. Sorry, darling. And do the washing up while you're at it, you know. <laughs> and if you fancy putting that laundry outside, you know. No, uh, <laughs> so he takes me to the dining room. And, you know, he's getting on. And it's one of these formal sort of grandpa, grandma-type dining rooms. You know the type I mean? There's a sideboard with crystal on it. There's a high-polished table. And it's bitterly cold in there. <laughs> and it's never used, you know. And so we're in there. And he's shuffling from foot to foot. And I tell you what, I, I knew he was going to tell me something important. And, and I actually thought, he's got cancer. I thought, I thought he's, he's ill, and he's going to die, and he wants to tell me. Bless his heart. So I'm kind of bracing myself, getting all the old pastoral anointing on, you know. <laughs> and he says to me, he says, Chris, as you know, I've, I've been a bachelor all my life, and I've known you, I realize, longer than any living human being now. And um, I, I wonder whether you would honor me I'm thinking, where's this going? I wonder whether you would honor me by being willing to be my heir. 10.25 that morning, I'd lost an inheritance. 2.45, I'm getting an inheritance. And he said, if you'll agree, and in token of which, as a seal of that inheritance, I'd like to give you this diamond ring. Oh, my gosh. I said, well, I don't know. I think I can think about it. Or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to sort of commit, you know. No. I mean, I was blown away. Absolutely blown away. I was in a state of shock for the rest of the afternoon. And we drove home and I was telling, you know, talking to Fliss about it. It was just incredible. Inheritance matters to God. And Paul isn't just being verbiose when he prays that the church of Jesus Christ should have it, the eyes of its heart opened to know the hope and inheritance that we have in Christ. It's important. Now, there's another sermon here, but in order to gain an inheritance, someone has to die. Now, Jesus has died to to enable us to receive every spiritual blessing. But one of the things, and this is another sermon, not time to go down, there's something perhaps for you to explore, is that really the church needs to die in order to gain the inheritance. The church needs to die. What do I mean by that uh, without going into another sermon? The church needs to die in that we are all too fond of presenting ourselves in the Father's presence and saying, these are our plans, this is what we're hoping to do in 2009. God bless us. You know, we've got to learn to get before God and say, Father, I don't care if I sit here waiting for the rest of my days, but tell me what's on your heart. That's the difference. 
That's where resurrection power is. The rest of it, you know, God, he's a, he's, he is gracious, loving, and kind. He will find you a parking space if you send out that arrow prayer. But, of course, none of you ever do that, do you? He's into that because he's a father, just as I indulge my granddaughter and sometimes indulge my children. But the big deal is this, that we present ourselves before God on that baseline waiting to be served up whatever. And however it comes, we say, yes, Lord. That is a submitted heart. That is a dead heart, a heart that has died to itself and is saying, Father, I want to live for you. And Paul had a fresh understanding, fresh revelation of that in prison and longed it for the church. The last thing, and we're beginning to wind up now, is this. Verse 19. He prays that we might understand his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That is a power, the self-same resurrection power, that raised Christ from the dead. Now think about it. You know, for a long time, I was in awe and amazement and, and it... it It generated praise when I considered the resurrection of Christ. I thought, what a wonderful thing. And I had heard and was taught that the Holy Spirit dwelt in me and was at work in me. But I didn't connect the two things. The Holy Spirit at work in me was a kind of a Chris Lane Holy Spirit, a kind of chopped down version, a bridged version. You know, something that was sort of suitable for me. And, you know, it was essence maybe, but but there was a lot missing because, you know, it's a bit like having these iPhones, you know, you, you can't have the whole deal. I, I don't know, I mean, you can't have the whole program on there, can you? Just sort of cut down versions. I have no idea anyway, don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit in me was kind of like a, was like, uh, well, if the Holy Spirit for real was the kind of Porsche dealership type Holy Spirit, you know, that wonderful building over there, I was the kind of Arthur Daly secondhand car type version <laughs> And that was okay with me. The Spirit of God was in me. He was real, honestly. But it wasn't the same as Jesus' Spirit, was it? No, of course not. Rubbish! That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that the Holy Spirit at work in you is the self-same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now that has two important implications. One of which is this. Does that mean... That your problems, your issues, those things that, that, that keep besetting you, that cause you to stumble or hesitate in your walk with Christ, are too much for the Holy Spirit? The answer is emphatically no. He has seen with it and dealt with it all before. So when you stare in the mirror at the end of a difficult day, as you're brushing your teeth, you're just about to get into bed, and you look at yourself and you say that little thing, call yourself a Christian. Reflecting on a... A moment when you didn't do so well during the course of the day. When the enemy comes and whispers, doesn't come on full frontal attack, but just kind, of, just kind of has a few words in your ear, which pull you down and make you go to bed heavy-hearted and think, oh, flipping heck, you know. 
The truth of the matter is that the Holy Spirit at work in you is the self-same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And therefore, he will complete the work he has started in me. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The second thing is God's power working through us. Again, we disqualify ourselves. So often we will take a back seat or we will, we will think, if only I could or if only I was, if I, was a bit, if I knew a bit more about the scriptures or I was a bit more anointed or a bit more this. Or, it's not about you or about your capabilities. Jesus took 12 no-hopers, well that's a bit of an exaggeration, fishermen, tax collectors, religious zealots. He took 12, a motley crew, and turned them into planet shakers. The Holy Spirit working through us. But we back away. We back away from this. We, 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 we tussle with the scriptures and, and argue God, with God. I remember when I was uh, about 13 or 14, uh, a friend of mine at school, two twin brothers, they uh, said to me one, one day at school during lunch, they said, we just bought this moped and we're riding it round the allotments on Saturday. It's really brilliant. You want to come? And I had never ridden anything mechanical or propelled or petrol driven at all, you know. So this sounded a fantastic opportunity. So I said, yeah, what time? So we arranged to meet on the allotments. And sure enough, they brought this, this little moped along. It was called an NSU Quickly. And none of you are old enough to remember what those were like. But they were like post-war things, like a bicycle with a kind of putt-putt engine on it. And we must have spent 30 minutes trying to get the thing started. And in the end, the only way we could get it started was to run alongside like the clappers and then when it fired, leap onto the thing. It's very dangerous, I tell you. <laughs> anyway, my friend Tim, it was, he, he actually stumped up the money. So he, they got this thing going finally and off he goes. He's you know, careering around the, the allotments and bouncing off these little paths and there's all these old gentlemen with their leeks and radishes you know, throwing clods, get off me radishes, you horrible little boy, and all this kind of stuff. And it's very exciting, very dangerous, you know. Anyway, he comes round, and as he comes round the corner, he's, he's shouting, he's screaming at us, I can't stop, I can't stop. Mickey, get ready to jump on, mate, get ready to jump on. So Tim dives off, and Mickey dives on, and I'm thinking, flipping heck, I'm next. And he goes round there, once again, the old codgers are throwing the compost out. Get off me, get off me, lettuces, you horrible little thing. Round he comes and Mickey's saying, ready Chris, ready Chris. And anyway, I'm sort of there and anyway, I manage, I jump on and there I am, astride a 49cc NSU quickly. My hair is streaming back. My cheek flesh is pressed against my jaws as I hurtle along at 12 miles an hour. <sighs> I've always been a speed freak. It's probably why I drive a Morris Minor now, you know. <laughs> Next weekend, Friday came round. Mickey and Tim came up to me. You, come, you ready to come down the allotments? And I surprised myself. My reaction really surprised me because I loved it. it was, I felt alive. It was a tremendous Saturday. And I said, oh, no. Oh, my mum said we've got to go into, 
into Twickenham to get some school shoes. Oh, flip. It was a complete lie. I was just going chicking out. It was a complete lie. I'd loved the, the exhilaration of it all. We love the Holy Spirit's work amongst us, don't we, folks? Don't we, folks? I think. You see, the church is like that, like me. The church of Jesus Christ is saying, we love God's work among us, don't we, folks? Don't we? Thank you, bless you. And I'm not sure whether we're bottling out. I'm not sure that we're bottling out. Paul imprisoned, prays fervently, has a breakthrough, his spirit soars, and he prays for the church. He prays for the church that we might know that resurrection power at work among us and through us. I've run out of time, I think, and I'm just going to finish with a little story. I was at the Pensacola Revival. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, don't know about this, but in the uh, mid-90s, 96, there was a revival, like I was telling about, based in a place I'd never heard of, Pensacola, Florida. And people who study revivals were interested in this because there's always revival going on somewhere. But this was unusual because it was on, it was on a western continent mainland. It wasn't in a two-thirds world country. So it was notable and interesting. And I got wind of this very early on. And so I jumped on a plane and actually my friend Dave Campbell from City Church went with me as well. And uh, we arrived there, and I tell you, it was an extraordinary experience. Wonderful worship, made the hair of, on the back of your neck stand up, just so kind of electrifying. And then the preacher got up, a guy called Steve Hill, and he preached, just seemed to be forever, forever and forever. And you could feel a kind of an energy building up. And then finally, they got this young young lady, she was 14 or 15, to stand up and she did this every night and sing a song called Come, Run to the Mercy Seat. And I'm sitting there observing this, thinking this is extraordinary. There's a lot of, this place was packed. And the moment she's, she started singing this song, I, I, I don't know how to even begin to describe what happened. It felt like someone went whoosh. And suddenly, hundreds of people were running running to the front of the church. I had never seen anything like this. I went back two or three times, and in three or four months, it had gone off the boil. But in those early days, it was extraordinary, and quite unlike anything we'd seen. But in the midst of all that, I, I, I got prayer whenever I could, you know, just ran down to the front and got prayer, you know, it didn't matter what it was, you know, PMT, you know, all sorts of stuff, you know, just run down the front, get prayer, you know. What's PMT stand for, by the way? Uh, but um, I just wanted to get prayer. I thought, I've come all this way, I might as well. But in the midst of all of that, the Lord showed me 
uh, uh, had a vision. And it was humorous. And, and, and I'm not sure whether I've actually seen this in a movie. But the Lord seemed to speak to me about the state of the church at that time. And at that time I was involved in national leadership. I'm not now. But it was a Western setting. And we were in the sheriff's office, and it was late at night. And there was myself, and I, found, I, I fancied that I was dressed in some sort of cowboy outfit. And there was the sheriff there and somebody else. And suddenly, the door opens, and in staggers the town drunk. Likeable fella, really. Not fighting mad, but he staggers in, and he, the sheriff didn't even... All the sheriff did was sort of look at his watch. This is all unfolding like a, like a film for me. And he looked over and he said, Hi, Bill, or whatever, I can't remember what the guy's name was. Hi, Bill. And Bill, the town drunk, staggers in like this, and he's in a terrible state. And he staggers across the thing, and he sort of acknowledged, and he goes to the, the jail, and it's these cowboy, you know, these sort of, the, just literally the jail things with the bars there. And he lets himself into one, and he goes and he lies out and he's straight away snoring. And instantly, that's where it stopped. Instantly I knew what the Lord was showing me. The story was this, that that guy had been arrested for being drunk and disorderly so many times that he didn't even wait to be arrested anymore. He just turned up in jail and put, let himself in. <laughs> I have a slightly disconcerting feeling that the Church of Jesus Christ is like that. We're so used to surrendering the hope that Christ has brought for us, the inheritance that Christ has brought for us, the opportunity of knowing Christ as he would be known, the power that is at work within us, the power that could work through us. We are so familiar with backing off and letting the enemy strip that away from us again that we're letting ourselves into jail. No wonder Paul, the prisoner, prayed that we would be set free. Amen. Let's stand and pray and then I'll hand back to Anne. Heavenly Father, that's my prayer for myself, for the church I have the privilege of leading. And I pray for this church too. That wherever, Lord God, be it at a personal level, if we were in prison personally because of sin, unrighteousness, unbelief, there are a whole raft of issues that can trap us and hold us. But if as a church we are limiting your potential, oh God have mercy upon us. Please forgive us. Lord, I would be one that lies down to die waiting for you to call Lazarus come out and everyone said